Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Our reading this morning is from Matthew 6, 25 to 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for himself, for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The grass withers and the flower fades. Uh, if you are still here, you haven't been awkwarded out yet, that's great. Uh, kids, we do have Elevate this morning, so if you're first and second grade, follow Mr. Jeremy back there, and uh, he would love to put up with your shenanigans. <laughs> uh, for the next little bit, the rest of us that are in here going to be in here not being anxious. All right. I don't know uh, if you felt it when you came in this morning or, or smelled a little bit of that the burning off of the rust that had been built up over the last 10 months, but uh, the heat is on. So finally, the outdoor temperature is matching the indoor temperature here at Refuge uh, in the sanctuary. Anyway, um, we're going to continue on through the Sermon on the Mount. We're, we're, we're trekking through. We're going to get to a stopping point before Advent, uh, and then we'll finish it 2024. I, I think I warned you guys, if you were here, when we started the Sermon on the Mount, that we'd be in it for a little bit, uh, and we've been in it for a little bit. Uh, also, what I want to tell you is um, back on the doors, we're going we're gonna to finish with a little exercise, provided that I stop talking in time. Uh, back by the doors on the, on the inside of the doors back here, uh, are a couple of some pieces of paper and pens. Um, so we're going to do a little exercise toward the, uh, toward the end. So if you get up to go to the bathroom during the middle of the sermon, you're like, hey, you know what? Might as well stock up now. Get some for your row and you can hand them out. But we're going to do a little exercise together toward the end. I just want to let you know that that's there. Um, when, <clears throat> when I was in seminary, the church that we attended in seminary, it was down in Texas. Uh, it, was, it was pretty big. It was like 1,500, which by our standards is a huge church. By Texas standards is pretty average. Um, but uh, the, the pastor, before, before he would preach, it wasn't every week, but uh, every so often, a couple times a month, before he would dismiss the kids, he would do a children's sermon, right? Which is like a little five to ten minute little spiel. 
where he has all the kids down, come down front, and he talks to them before they go. And did anybody grow up in a church that had the children's sermon, right? The children's sermon, if you grew up in this, you know the children's sermon was never for the children. Right? It was never, it was a way to talk to the adults by talking to the children. They were props. And so one week, and, and this one week, he had all the kids come down, and he holds up a yellow slip of paper. It's a little thin yellow slip of paper. And he goes, does anybody, do any of you know what this is? And a couple of kids ratted out their parents. It's a speeding ticket. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's a speeding ticket. And uh, thought, we didn't have kids back then. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, and see, aren't you glad I don't do children's sermons? Like this would be, this would be my way f- of me poking at you without. But um, he went on to, to talk about the law and how the law is good at kind of keeping things in check. And even when we might want to not obey the law all the time or we might think some laws are superfluous. That's probably my words, not his. Um, but... Uh, but even when, we, even when we don't realize when it's for our good, you know, the, the law is there to protect us. And, and, and then he kind of transitioned toward the end. He, even Brother Al uh, breaks the law sometimes and needs grace, right? And so, now, that sermon was not for the kids, right? That sermon is a way for him to tell the entire church that he just got a speeding ticket. And, uh, and it was okay. It's important to know your audience, Right? It's important to know who you're talking to and, and, and who these words are meant for. Uh, in the case of the Sermon on the Mount, it's important to know, it's important to remember, and in all of Scripture, the Bible is not written directly to us. Uh, the Bible is written to a people in a place and time. And we need to understand who the audience is, who the original audience is. And we need to understand in the Sermon on the Mount, there's actually two different audiences. Who is Jesus talking to? And then who is Matthew writing to about who Jesus was talking to? So it's important to know those things. And the more that we can understand who Jesus is talking to, the more we can understand what's going on in his world and and all that, the more we can begin to apply that and go, okay, so what do we have in common with them? And then then from there, what do I need to hear from Jesus? Um, And the reason I want to start with this, with this passage in particular... Because it's, I want this passage, it's important to keep us from getting distracted. Jesus is talking specifically to his disciples. All throughout the Sermon on the Mount, there's crowds gathered around, but Jesus is actually talking to his disciples, the men and women that he is sending on mission to live out this upside-down kingdom. Uh, and these people have at least some measure of, of means by which to survive, to keep themselves fed and clothed. So in this passage in particular, there might be a temptation to what about this passage, right? Jesus promises the, that God cares for the birds of the air. He cares for the grass, the lilies of the field. Uh, he will provide for you. And there might be a temptation to say, well, okay, but what about? What about these people? What about people who are starving? What about people in war-torn nations? What about all these things? And listen, I want to tell you, first of all, when Jesus sends his disciples out on this mission, part of that is to bear the image of God to people that are starving, people who are in war-torn nations, to be people of peace, to be people who are generous, who give, and who care for that. That is part of the mission of God, a significant part of the mission of God. Um, 
but also, it's important to know that when Jesus does encounter the crowds, when Jesus does encounter people who are starving, right, what does he do? He feeds them. When he, when he does encounter people who are sick, he, he heals them. And even when Jesus encounters a couple of people who are dead, he raises them from the grave. So it's important to know that what he's, who he's talking to here are his disciples. And he's saying, you have enough. You will have provided for you what you need to go and be about this mission. And the reason, again, uh, the reason I want to cover that is so that we we're not distracted by the whatabouts, because we live in a day where whatabouts are prominent. That's not an unimportant question to ask, but we need to understand so we're not distracted by that, but also that this is, this is Jesus talking to his disciples, and his disciples also includes anyone in this room who considers themselves a follower of Jesus, who is a disciple of Jesus. Um, that we are able to, uh, that we are able to, and that we are called to give up our hold on the stuff of this world, to loosen up our grip on that. All right. So, does that make sense? So, I want us to be focused on what Jesus is saying to his disciples here, and not to get caught up in the whatabouts. All right. So let's start by examining the words of Jesus to his disciples. Verse 25, Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not not life more than food, and the body more than clothing, and the mind more than entertainment? Sorry, that's that's the contemporary version. All right. Do not be anxious. Everybody good? Any questions on that part? All right, let's move on. Yeah, and if you are anxious, um, have you tried not being? It, I've heard, I mean, it seems like it'd be a lot easier. Okay, enough of the sarcasm. Uh, this, this command, again, this is originally to Jesus' disciples. And if you remember, these disciples that Jesus is going to call... These are people that have actually left their sources of income to follow Jesus. They have left their jobs to follow Jesus. Um, And in fact, many of them are eventually going to be called in following Jesus to actually give up their lives. At the hands of Jewish leaders, at the hands of pagan leaders, Roman leaders, take your pick. Many of these disciples that are here with him right now are, are literally giving up everything. And what Jesus is telling people that left their incomes behind to follow him, specific context, this exact context, is that their calling to follow Jesus is bigger than their income. But to live out this new kingdom reality, to be the first line to spread this new uh, kingdom reality uh, is, is... What they will need will be provided. And their calling is bigger 
than what they did for a, what they have done for a living. Now, many of us in our day are not going to be called to necessarily give up our jobs. We're going to be called to figure out and navigate how do we follow Jesus within our job, within our vocation, as we work. So Jesus first gives them a command, and it will be, consequently, a command for all of disciples of Jesus, anyone who follows Jesus or apprentices Jesus or however this term is helpfully conveyed, uh, is a disciple of Jesus, he gives this command, do not be anxious. Why? Because life is more than the pursuit of clothes and money and food and entertainment. Because the calling of Jesus, your life is more valuable than just seeking anything that the world would have. Or what we talked about last week is the all-encompassing term for this, mammon. Life is more than the pursuit of mammon. And it brings us back to last week when we saw that storing up material possessions, is, it, it's the equivalent of building up temporary things, temporary treasures, whose guardians and caretakers are moth, moths and rust. And why do we put so much value on temporary things? And not only that, but why does the pursuit of temporary things, like money and food and even experiences and experiences that we don't fully take in because we're too busy taking pictures on our phone of the experiences so that we don't forget the experience that we're not actually experiencing because we're too busy taking pictures on our phone of the experience. And why do temporary things, and then like approval. How many times did Jesus talk about approval? Don't do these things for the approval of others. Admiration of fickle people. Why do these pursuits take so much of our lives? We give our lives to these things. I give my life to these things. The disciples would eventually face the literal threat of their lives. For us, there's very, very few of us who have, there's some that have some very, very, very pressing financial needs. Most of us, by and large, culturally, relatively few people who are facing facing serious financial worry, like waking up and saying, I don't know what I'm going to eat today, I don't know what I'm going to wear. And are we less anxious? We are a train wreck. We have plenty. I want to take just a minute and I want to talk about some of the anxiety in our day because I think it's overwhelming. We have more time more free time. We have more money, more access, more education, more medication, more of everything than any generation ever has had in history. And anxiety, self-harm, suicide is spiking like crazy. And I heard, I've, I've heard the argument, well, this is because we're more aware now. We're more self-aware of the issues that we are facing internally. And listen, I think, that can, I think that can definitely carry some of the weight, but I think to simply suggest that that's it, I think that's pretty naive. I, it, I think that's naive. So I wanna spend just a minute here. This is not nearly enough time, but, but just a minute. Uh, there, there was a guy who did some research. Uh, he's a systems theorist and a philosopher. He has like, 
20 things with his name. So I don't know exactly what he did. Uh, but his name was Bucky Fuller. And if you think Bucky's a weird nickname, his actual name is Buckminster. So uh, sounds made up. This is back in the 80s. Uh, but he started this trend of looking at, at the idea of total knowledge, the total knowledge of mankind available throughout history and how long it would take that knowledge to double. And if it doesn't make sense, hang with me here for just a minute. And don't put the graph up yet, but I'm gonna get, I'll tell you when. Um, and this, this, when you see the graph, it's, it's straight out of the 80s. Uh, but he would talk about how long it would take for, for knowledge to double in the world. All right? So you may not follow along, but I think once we get into it, you, you'll understand the basic, the general principle. In the, time, in the day of Jesus, he estimated it would take about 1,500 years for the amount of knowledge available in the world. It would take about 1,500 years for that to double. Okay? By the time we get to the year 1,500, that number is down to 250 years. So it would take 250 years for the amount of information available in the world to double. You tracking with me now? All right. By the time we get to 1900, the year 1900, that's down to 100 years. So the amount of information in the world would double every century. By the end of World War II, that's down to 25 years. The last estimate that I'm aware of is done in 2020. You, Griffin, you can go ahead and put the chart up now. It was done in, done in 2020. And what was predicted is that the amount of information in our world right now doubles, and this is three years ago, so this is seriously dated, doubles every 11 to 12 hours. We're exposed to earthquakes in Afghanistan, manhunts in Maine, war in the West Bank, murder, death of a friend, a cat video, school shooting, controversial politician, conspiracy theory, workout pose, kid missing, my kid's accomplishment, sarcastic mean about Taylor Swift, how dare you, TikTok advice on what to not eat or drink or eat or drink or say or don't say, followed by another cat video. And I don't think, and that's not just social media, that's, you get on any time we're on the computer and to say, well, we just need to get off the computer, it's great advice. It, 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 it's not, that's a, that's a technical solution for an adaptive problem. And I don't think we're equipped to take in this much information. And the expectations then are not only for you to experience all of these things in your life, but you're also supposed to have an opinion about all of them, care about all of them, support each one, being on the right side. If you're single, then what happiness really is, is, is something else. And you look at all the pictures of married people who are so happy in their pictures. And if you're married, then you're constantly looking at everybody else on vacation, other families that are on vacations, then you're wondering how in the world can everybody afford to be at the beach every week? And if you have kids, you can become consumed, if, if your parents, that you see all of these successful, cute kid that every other kid in America is going to be a rock star while yours are sitting across the room on their iPhone playing Minecraft. Every tragedy that we're supposed to fix, every controversy that we're supposed to be well-informed about and write about, every story, every picture well-crafted to show you how much we're missing out on, 
and how we are to be better at everything we do. And we're often preached at by people who I will promise you as a pastor, I get the inside track of everybody, and I will promise you you're lectured by people who don't even come close to being the person that they are asking and telling you that you should be. Let me absolutely promise you that, myself included. We are information addicted and overloaded. And not only that, every generation in history has looked at life, has expected life to be difficult and hard, and they were pleasantly surprised when things went well. We live in a generation in time where it expects and demands and everything is glorified that it should be perfect, and we're incredibly disappointed when we find out it's not. Gen Z. Gen Z, roughly between the ages of 13 and 23, 25 maybe. You have essentially been raised in a world without, with, without ever knowing that this is not the way the world was. Information and comparisonitis. And according to stats, Gen Z, it's wreaking havoc. And we can all read stats differently. One of the quotes I read was about, was a Scottish philosopher who said stats are like a how a drunken man seems a how a drunk man seems a, sees a lamppost, not for illumination but for support. I'll let that sink in, if I could say it right. The stats for anxiety, for self harm, self harm for girls, suicide for boys, in general. Boys tend to act, act externally. Girls tend to act internally. They have rapidly increased, and the numbers started skyrocketing between 2010 and 2012. Happens to coincide with the explosion of social media and phones. And the anxiety is real, and it doesn't help when we just preach sermons. It doesn't help when you say, well, you just need to. It's really unhelpful. The stats of kids hanging out together, going to the mall, sneaking out late, all of those things are way down. The stats regarding hospitalization for self-harm, especially among adolescent girls, uh, that had held steadily all through the 90s and the early 2000s. Once 2010 hit, it doubled in four years. Anxiety and depression, the ways that they mess with us, the ways that they affect us, how they shape the ways we view ourselves, the way we view God, if we view God, the way we see the world, these impact us deeply, even to the core of who we believe ourselves to be. And we're even going to try to change that now. And religious language can actually be helpful. Words like sin and brokenness, when they're used properly, can help us understand these things. Yes, the world is broken. We are broken in it. These are helpful words. When we go, oh, how come, how come I feel bad? I shouldn't feel bad. Yeah, sin is a helpful way, can be a helpful way to understand that when it's used in its right way. It's actually quite freeing. God acknowledges it, tells us you're sinful. The world is sinful. It's actually the great 
leveling of the playing field. When the Bible says everybody is sinful, that frees us from going, ah, okay, all right, so it's not just me. It's everybody. The alternative that we worship is a never-ending race to try to keep up with a precarious, fickle target that is always moving. As long as I stay ahead of the game, then I will be accepted by these people. That's a relentless race that you will never, ever, ever conquer. The day you conquer it, you run the risk of being canceled the next day. It levels the playing field. We're not left to try to convince ourselves that we're actually shooting stars that just need to soar. Or, from the religious side, if I just do all the Sermon on the Mount stuff, if I just pray so that other people see me, if I do my Bible study and take an Instagram picture of it, if I wear the the appropriate fall clothing and do all the right things, then, then, then I will be acceptable. And Jesus says over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount, your reward is that you get the admiration of fickle people that will turn on you in a day. Give it time. Sin tells us why we and why the world around us are broken, why we feel so out of place. I love the way John Mark Comer puts this in his book, Live No Lies. He says that the devil institutes deceptive ideas that appeal to our disordered desires and then become normalized in a sinful society. The world, the flesh, and the devil are three enemies. And this can be helpful to understand the problem. Now, these words can also definitely be abused. If it's ever been applied to you, you ever hear the words, you're just a worthless sinner. Let me tell you something. Yes, you are a sinner, but it is a lie straight from the pit of hell that you or any other living creature is somehow worthless. You are created in the image of God. You are not worthless. In fact, in fact, listen to the next words that come out of Jesus' mouth. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, nor do they send social media updates, nor have they developed any software, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Why are you anxious about clothing? Look at the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows you need them all. Uh, We took a drive to see my daughter uh, down in Chattanooga this week, this past week. She graduates in December. Super proud. She's graduating a semester early. Uh, And the last bit of the drive, Nashville is horrible. But once you get out of Nashville, the last little part of the drive to Chattanooga is in the Cumberland Mountains. And this week, I mean, they were simply brilliant. The trees were painted on every hillside. It was breathtaking. And then we took a drive to the lookout. You can throw that up. We took a drive to the lookout. And I don't know if you can see that. Um, This is where my daughter goes to school. 
her dorm room looks out over something fairly similar. The eagles and the hawks, this is overlooking the valley and the Lula River. Uh, the eagles and the hawks were circling majestically like hundreds of feet below us. I felt very, very small. God's design and creation is astounding. And here's what Jesus is telling his disciples. That the creator of the universe, the guy who designed all of this, has a much greater value and care for you than all of the world that he has set into place. So yes, there is a command to not be anxious, but it's also an invitation to not be anxious. to trust, to be known and loved and cared for. And this doesn't mean that nothing bad will ever happen. In fact, Jesus promises that to follow him, there's gonna be plenty of bad stuff. What's funny about that? This is the story of God's people over and over and over again. We kind of can bring charges against God. We want God to make our lives perfect, right? If God is, is good, then why is there anything bad in the world? And so then we accuse him of stuff when our lives are not perfect. And then we so, so easily, over and over and over again, go from there and go worship mammon, which only makes life miserable. And it's been proven over and over and over again and more complicated. And not once do we ever bring a charge against mammon. Isn't that funny? Mammon, you promise all this stuff and you never deliver. I'm going to back to the God of the creation. We don't ever bring that charge against mammon. Not once do we say, mammon, you promised to make everything good, and you didn't. And here's the thing. If you're like, yeah, why do we do that? That is the story of the Old Testament. Over and over and over and over and over again. Chasing after other people's gods, even though they constantly fail and the God of Scripture is always uh, always provides. And so Jesus brings that up. Don't seek after th these things. That's just like the Gentiles. In, in Nazareth uh, and Capernaum, there were two Roman outposts, two Roman cities of Sephorus and Tiberias. And Roman paganism was just pure decadence for the wealthy. Everyone else became objects in their charades of self-indulgence, wine, women, and entertainment. This is what money bought them. And even though we see over and over and over and over and over again, it's exemplified for us over and over and over again how badly that can end, it still appeals to our disordered desires. Mammon doesn't care about you. It just wants more and delivers less and less, and we chase after it. God does care about you. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're even mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Take just a second. Consider what you have. Consider all that God has given you that you and I live in easily the wealthiest time and place in all of history. And collectively, 
we are a mess. If money could solve our problems, it would have. What does it look like to actually trust God? Do not be anxious. And listen, listen, I know some of you, um, I know that some of you do not struggle with anxiety and depression. And I think that is glorious. Like, that is amazing. And I love that. I love that. To me, they feel like my constant companions. Um, And what Jesus gives us here is both a command and a promise. You don't have to be worried about everything in the world. Let me do that. Jesus finishes by saying, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is not a call to be lazy. This is not a call to just sit there. This is a call, like we often do these dichotomies in our world. This is a call to both work and trust. Labor and trust. To pray while calling the ambulance. To care about those in need and pray for their healing and salvation. To send thoughts and prayers and ask what can be done to make things better. To pray for the hungry and give them food. Um, I've heard some thoughts on the concept of redemptive shame that I really appreciate. In our world, the way we use shame, it's always bad. We always paint it as bad and And I get that, and I think the way we use it is true. But there's also some elements of of redemptive shame. And what does that look like? It helps us remember that we are limited creatures. We're not the answer to everybody's problem. We can't be. We're not the saviors of the world, and we can be relieved of that duty. I still think one of the funniest, I think it was a post on Twitter, one of the funniest comments I've ever seen. This is 10, 15 years ago. To anybody suffering from illness or natural disaster, hang in there. We're liking posts as fast as we can. The redemptive aspects of shame helps us remember, I need Jesus. I need forgiveness. I need salvation. I need healing. I need to be loved and cared for by the creator of the universe. I need other people to encourage me. Not enable me, but to encourage me. And then Jesus gives some really great advice about worrying about all of the future. Worry about today. One step at a time. It's God who holds all of time and space together, not me and not you. When we focus on today, we can remember his faithfulness. We can remember his faithfulness from yesterday. And that holds well then for tomorrow. We can trust him for tomorrow. Um, sometimes if you're like me, we're gonna, I'm, I'm going to give you just a helpful thought and then, and, then, uh, uh, and then we'll do this practice here. If you're like me, um, when you start to think too much about everything, anybody overthinkers? All right, cool. Uh, and I saw a comedian one time, if you ever meet an overthinker, don't tell them that they're an overthinker because we've already thought of that and we don't need, don't think that we haven't thought about you thinking about that to tell us to not think about it because we've already thought about that. Um, if you're like me and you start thinking, it can easily spiral and get out of control. And a couple of years ago, 
Uh, a therapist that I had gave me some really, really helpful advice on how to recognize that you're spiraling. He gave me three Ps. The first one is personal. You take everything personally. It's you. It's all you. Every comment, even the comment way far off that you see two other people talking, they're probably talking about me, right? So you're taking everything personally. And then it's pervasive. It's not just this issue that needs to be addressed. It's everything. Everything is going wrong. Everything's falling apart. And then the last one is permanent, that it's never going to change. It's always going to be this way. And he said, if you can recognize those three things that you're thinking in those three realms, you can be aware that you're spiraling. You're not thinking about reality accurately. And then when you become aware of that, what that allows us to do is acknowledge our redemptive shame to say, I am so limited, I need Jesus. This is a command and an invitation that I am loved and cared about by the God of the universe. Um, All right, before we do this exercise, I want to say a couple things. One, therapy can be helpful. It can be helpful. It can also be uh, a path towards self-indulgence. So be wise. But therapy can be helpful. It can be. Um, Medicine can be helpful. I'd say be careful with medicine. Uh, This is not me being anti-medication. Um, This is me being either too resistant or too trigger-happy with with medication. Uh, I've seen medication mess people up. I've seen medication do wonders. Uh, I've seen medication just numb. We do a whole lot of coping in our day that's just numbing. We have to feel. So none of those things are bad, but be wise. And all of these things are only good when they ultimately lead us to Jesus. So Grab a piece of paper. We're going to take just a minute. Um, You can do this on your phone. There's pieces of paper back there. If you need a pen, grab one. Um, And when you get this piece of paper, I want you to um, put two lines, so divide it up into three sections. And we'll we'll take a little bit of time, but we're not going to take a whole lot of time. But this is a practice that you can do. You can, use, uh, you can use the Bibles in front of you or your lap or the back of the person in front of you if you know them well. If you don't know them well, it'd be awesome too. Do we have enough paper? Tracy's going to be mad at me. I took all the paper out of the printer. I'm sure there's other places to get paper, but. All right, get your piece of paper, put two lines so you have three different sections on the paper, all right? Divide it into the paper into thirds. In the first column, here's what I want you to do. In the first column, I want you to write down things that you are anxious about. You don't have to put a paragraph This is just for your eyes. Don't cheat off the person next to you. Um, Something that you're anxious about. So that may be a relationship. That may be a bill coming up. That may be a job. It may be a grade. It may be a friend at school. Whatever it might be, just put a a word uh, or two that helps you remember and recall. This is a situation that I am anxious about. 
And the reason I want you to do this is because way too often, you can, you can write while I'm talking, but way too often our anxieties remain powerful because they're unnamed. They just live in the nebulous realm in your head and we don't actually write them down and see maybe, maybe this is not as big of a deal as it, as it is when it lives in my head. So take a couple minutes, write down two or three or four. In the middle section, then, I want you to write down, look at the anxiety and, and across from that, write down what is, what is an emotion that that evokes in you? Is it fear, anger, loneliness, hurt? When you think about this situation, when it comes up, So name a few of the things that are causing anxiousness. Some of them may be legitimate, some of them may not be. And then what emotion corresponds with that? What does that, what does that bring up in you? In the third column... I want you to write down the promises of God. It may be something that corresponds with that specific issue or with that emotion. But what are the promises of God in Scripture? We have one right here. God cares more about you. You are much more valuable to him than the birds of the air and the grass of the field. promise of God that I will never leave you nor forsake you. The promise that you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That you are his beloved child. That he is good. That the pain of this present world could not possibly hold a candle to the joy of the kingdom to come. This can be a really helpful practice. One, 
is just naming the things that are out there that are causing you anxiety. To be able to see what those are so that they're not just nameless monsters out there that rule over you. To see how you respond to those and then to believe and trust that God is good and that he's faithful. Everybody have a pretty good few lists going and you can definitely, uh, this, this is something you can do on a weekly basis, this is something you can do often if you need to. But here's what we're gonna do. I want you to read in that first column I want you to read the first two columns. Just glance over them. And when you do that, because God made us whole beings, and there are things that he's actually given us in our physiology and our makeup of our body that are really helpful, helpful gifts. So I want you to read through those first two columns. Everybody look down at the things you've written down. And I want you to take a deep breath in. And then I want you to look at that third list, at the promises of God. And I want you to breathe out a relief, a letting go, a trust. Everybody breathed in with me. I don't know if anybody's actually breathed out yet. I couldn't, nobody was like, so don't keep holding your breath. Okay, good. I don't want everybody passing out here at the end. But as you look through that, God's gift of breathing, I mean, multiple benefits, <laughs> life being one of them, um, but also it has a way in a moment of stress and anxiety to breathe in and then to breathe out the promises of God has a way of kind of resetting us, of helping us kind of step back a little bit, clearing our minds and our souls. That's why we do that when we're anxious and nervous. It's a gift from God. I'm not trying to be like, mystical, weird thing. I, I think this is a gift from God in, in the very way that we're designed biologically. Let me pray for us. God, we, we are given a command to pursue you and to not be anxious, but to trust you. But, but it's not just a command against all reason. It's not a dare. It's not a forward this email on to 10 other people if you really, really trust me. It, is, it comes with a joyful and unbelievable promise. Do not be anxious because the God of the universe cares more about you than all of the beauty and wonder that we could lay our eyes on in creation around us. You don't demand that we trust you like everything else does with no expectation. You say over and over again throughout the Sermon on the Mount, do these things in private with your Father and there is your reward.
to be with your Father who loves you, to trust the King of the universe. And the rewards of this earth, the the, the kingdoms of this world that we will give everything for, we will give our identities for, we will lay down everything to pursue junk that is here today and gone tomorrow. We will do everything to get likes, to gain acceptance of a fickle people. And then we'll claim somehow that you're unjust, unloving, and don't care. While we literally give up the very souls of who we are to try to impress and please somebody else. Our sinful hearts are are quite a wonder. What we're told here, what we're promised here, don't be anxious because you care for your people. You care for all people. Help our unbelief. Help us to trust and believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.